This hour is brought to you by American Axle & Manufacturing. Our advanced electric drive technology portfolio proves that no one is more ready to bring the future faster than we are. To learn more about our market-ready, scalable driveline technologies, visit aam.com future. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shift, a podcast about mobility. I'm your host, Pete Bigelow. My guest today is transportation consultant, safety advocate, and author, Angie Schmidt. We'll be discussing the scourge of pedestrian fatalities that I mentioned on last week's show, um, which has swept across the country and seemingly gets worse every day. Uh, but first, and perhaps on a less grim topic, you may have seen the news this week that a cruise autonomous vehicle was recently pulled over by police officers in San Francisco because the vehicle did not have its headlights on at night. After stopping at one point, the vehicle drove away before one of the officers was done investigating. That brought some laughs and cackles from diners at a nearby restaurant who of course caught the whole thing on video. Uh, but the whole incident is no laughing matter according to Carnegie Mellon professor and autonomous vehicle safety consultant, Phil Koopman. Phil, who is also a one-time shift podcast guest, said this, and I quote, crews should take this as a wake-up call to get their safety house in order before they have a big event. Blaming safety critical failures on human error is generally indicative of a poor safety culture, end quote. Uh, which is thought that was a very interesting observation I wanted to share uh, you may know as part of its driverless permit in California, Cruise does have a law enforcement interaction plan on file. And for those of you who are more broadly interested in the topic of how AVs interact with police officers, this is going to be a topic of conversation this month at AUVSI's Exponential Summit uh, in Orlando, Florida, uh, where they'll be also talking about automated good freight movements. Um, if you're in attendance, plan on catching that discussion. Uh, you will see me there too. Uh, and I am curious whether in person or on Twitter or via email or LinkedIn, etc. cetera. Uh, I'm curious what you think about this particular topic of AVs interacting with, with law enforcement. So reach out and let me know. Uh, if that is a precursor to bigger safety problems to come in the AV world, then the pedestrian safety crisis here in the human-driven world is one that has already unfolded. Uh, more than 6,500 pedestrians died last year. Uh, it's a number that is up 17% year over year and 46% in the past decade, uh, which is staggering to think about. So here to tell us what's causing this uh, tragic trend and, and perhaps what we can do about it, please welcome Angie Schmidt. Angie, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Great to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. For those who aren't familiar with your work or your Twitter account, uh, can you introduce yourself? Uh, and just tell us a little bit about what you're all about. Yeah, so I'm, um, I'm based in Cleveland, and I started out just sort of as a writer, and my focus was on sustainable transportation. So it was really biking, walking, and transit. For about nine years, I worked for this um, New York City-based nonprofit called Streets Blog, and um, was just really in the weeds on a lot of that, that kind of stuff. Um, so a few years ago, I, I um, started writing a book about what I call the pedestrian safety crisis in the United States, um, and that was published in 2020. 
Um, so since then, I have been sort of touring virtually, you know, because it's mostly been pandemic times and talking about it, trying to raise awareness. And um, about a, a little over a year ago, I started my own company and um, I'm doing some consulting. Um, I do some policy work for some national nonprofits. I've been active on some campaigns that are trying to make um, certain state or, or federal reforms. And I'm also doing some direct planning work around pedestrian safety also. So what is the pedestrian safety crisis as you see it and why is it getting worse? Yeah, so there's been, it depends sort of on what statistics you use and what you use as sort of base here, but there's been about a 50% increase in pedestrian deaths over the past decade. And the problem's actually gotten worse during the pandemic, which was a little bit surprising for a lot of people because there was less driving. With traffic crashes in general, the ratio of fatalities to serious injuries is about eight to one. Um, but I think for pedestrian deaths, it's actually a little bit different because they're more likely to die when they're struck. But anyway, many times that amount are injured every year. Um, so, and that actually doesn't include a few thousand people that are killed on private properties. So if you're killed in like in a parking lot or that kind of thing, NHTSA doesn't count it as a pedestrian fatality. So, um, you know, to put it in perspective, it's like um, about twice as many people, even just based on the federal statistics as are killed in fires in the United States. Um, but it, it's sort of, um, I called it like a uh, silent epidemic in my, in my book title or subtitle. And it's sort of, it's sort of been um, hard to get people interested in traffic fatalities in general and sort of recognizing um, some of the structural reasons the problem might get worse or certain people might um, be injured or killed specifically or at high risk. Why is that? I've always kind of wondered at myself, like, why is, why are so few people interested in, in that particular topic until, until it happens to them or a loved one? Like, I think that's a lot of the, the advocacy work that we see in, throughout the industry, throughout the government. Uh, have you been able to kind of like put a finger on why is this so prevalent and, and silent at the same time? Yeah, I think we're just sort of used to it. Um, and I, I think like it has a little bit to do with like sort of the narrative about it. I think it's always been a problem in traffic safety. Um, like I, I wrote this thing about it and I actually haven't found someone to publish it yet, but I, I just, we sort of use traffic deaths as like the baseline number of acceptable deaths. So you, you'll hear like reporting about other like major killers, uh, like the opioid epidemic or sometimes suicide or gun violence. And they're always comparing to traffic deaths and it's just sort of the assumed like baseline level of mass death. Um, but if you look at our numbers compared to like a, a lot of our international peers, um, it's our safety record is pretty bad and it's, um, it's getting worse by comparison. Um, and, and, and this pedestrian death thing is very unusual. We used to be able to just sort of um, count on the fact that pedestrian deaths would gradually decline or traffic deaths overall would gradually decline. So this is really unusual to see this sort of sustained increase. Yeah, it's really interesting looking at the latest statistics, which are, you know, you know, even worse than before, uh, just this week from the Governor's Highway Safety Association, that pedestrian deaths are up 17% year over year comparing uh, the first 
six months of 2020 to the first six months of 2021. What is it, you mentioned that this has really gotten worse during the pandemic. Is, is there anything you can put your finger on as to, as to why even as vehicle miles travel declines, to at least to start early pandemic, that, that this is now, uh, even as they go back up, like deaths are continuing to get worse for pedestrians? Yeah, so one thing I write about a lot in my book is there's been this shift in the vehicle, the consumer vehicle fleet in the United States. Um, cars and trucks have just gotten a lot bigger in recent years. And I think like um, more and more, as many years goes by where that happens, more and more of our vehicle fleet, these smaller cars that were relatively safer when they struck pedestrians are being replaced by bigger and bigger cars that have higher risks. So, um, so that's a factor. Also, the, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that, that behavior was worse during the pandemic. I think like some of the um, broader problems we have in our society are manifesting themselves in ways that worsen traffic safety. So more aggressive driving behavior. Um, and also sort of in um, some of these like more aggressive tendencies have become part of vehicle design, especially with, you see it, especially with a lot of pickup trucks that have very tall, aggressive front ends now um, that almost are designed to look mean and intimidating. So um, I, I think there was not, people are always looking for one explanation. And in my book, I talk about, I don't think there's necessarily one thing that's driving this, although the thing we can point most closely to is the vehicle fleet changing and getting bigger, I think. But there's 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 a number of trends that are sort of um, happening at the same time that are negative for pedestrian safety. Yeah, the one that jumps out to me, which also seems to at once be one that's obvious yet very nebulous in terms of putting cold, hard analysis behind or numbers behind is you know, I drop my kids off at school every morning and I see at least a dozen parents in the uh, drop off line staring at their phones or as they're, you know, at the intersection turning left, they're on their phones. Uh, it, it, you know, any, anyone driving out there sees this on the road is there's a certain percentage of drivers using their phone while driving. And uh, how do we, can we account for like the role distraction plays in, in this pedestrian death uptick? Uh, or, or is that still hard to do? You know, what I said in my book was it was sort of hard to say, like it probably is having an impact. Now, I think we can pretty confidently say a lot of, there's a lot of hype about like distracted pedestrians and the data really doesn't support that theory very well. And I could go on about why if you want, and I do in the book. Yes, I, want, I do want to hear about, um, you know, I feel like that angle has gotten a lot, a disproportionate amount of coverage uh, compared to, to what the statistics are. So I am curious why you think uh, distracted walking has caught a lot of attention, uh, even if it's not a significant portion of the actual problem. Yeah, I think like a lot of the, the people who are in more influential positions in like media and government um, are the kind of people that can afford to drive a car, you know, at least um, unless they live in a 
really walkable neighborhood, you know? So, um, and that, that might be the kind of, kind of thing they encounter anecdotally on the drive to work that annoys them. Like they see someone texting near a crosswalk and that upsets them, right? <laughs> that doesn't mean that's really what the problem is because like, um, for example, three quarters of pedestrian deaths happen at night. So it doesn't mean that, it doesn't mean that a pedestrian couldn't be distracted by their phone at night, but also it um, seems a little less likely. Um, also, uh, pedestrian, the people who are killed while walking are disproportionately old, um, poor, um, people of color, not, not our most stereotypically wired demographics either. Um, so I, I can go on a, about it a little more, but, um, I, I don't think that should be the focus. <laughs> well, I am curious, uh, since you started out with it, uh, you know, that, that aspect of vehicle design that plays a role. What, you know, there's, there's people who work for automotive companies who are listening to this saying like SUVs and pickup trucks are our most profitable, uh, you know, vehicles. Like there's no way, there's no way we're changing that. Uh, right. So right. who, who is it NHTSA? Who should be regulating the size of vehicles? What's the, what is the like practical solution that, that could help in that respect? Yeah, I feel like everything that happens in the auto industry is like this complex interplay between the automakers, consumers, and regulators, right? Um, and sometimes the regulation has had sort of a perverse effect. <laughs> Some of our regulations have, you know, I just saw something about um, the emission standards were sort of incentivizing large trucks that were small. And um, I know that the profit motive <laughs> has been huge for the auto companies and especially the American auto companies who are sort of pigeonholed more in the SUV and truck sector. And sometimes I get sort of upset with consumers too, because I feel like professional, especially professional consumers, which is like sort of my, you know, I'm in this demographic, but very snobby about American made cars. I think unfairly, but for some reason, trucks, American made trucks and SUVs aren't subject to the same sort of um, bias. So I, honestly, I think like, when my book was partly inspired by this older book, I don't know if people there are familiar with it. They're written by Keith Bradshaw called High and Mighty. And it was all about um, the early, sort of the early generation of SUVs. And he has, um, you know, key people at Chrysler and on record saying they're really trying to tap into sort of aggressive, dangerous tendencies that people have and profit from them. So obviously I think that's wrong. And, um, but, but, you know, regulators have done a bad job sort of, tapping the brakes on it and consumers are this whole other <laughs> issue. So there's a lot going on, but I think like I, a lot of people in sort of, and I come from bike and biking and walking advocacy. And there are a lot of people are very militant about it on Twitter. And I think they're the run, like ban SUVs, you know, which I, I think there's so many intermediate steps in between there, right? Like there's so, there's so much middle grounds that could, save lives that we haven't, we just haven't done. Like why, why do we allow these bull bars on the front end of trucks 
and SUVs. Why don't we, we don't even research like what the safety impacts are. We let people do all these crazy aftermarket modifications that definitely worsen safety outcomes. You know, the states, NHTSA have been really hands off about that. Um, they, now we see even a lot of public agencies purchasing them for like, for example, their police departments, which I just think is totally negative for safety. And, uh, you know, there's just no outcry about it. So, and also I think, you know, there's potential, okay, if you're going to have a five foot grill on your Ford F-250 that produces a 15 foot forward blind zone or whatever, you ought to, maybe you need a forward <laughs> camera, maybe you need additional sensor technology, that kind of thing. And uh, it's, we, it's just been very um, hands off. So when it comes to, you know, vehicle size, vehicle type, you know, the regulatory environment, what consumers want. Like there's this, there's this relatively new thought in the safety communities about a, a quote unquote safe systems approach to, to improving the, the tra improving traffic safety, reducing the, the rising number of deaths. I'm curious if you find in your work is, is the safe system approach something that um, truly takes this more holistic view and, and holds good promise or is it just kind of a, a re-wrapping of previous campaigns and, and buzzwords and um, less, is there less there than, than it's? Yeah. No, I, don't, I definitely think it's like the right, <laughs> the right framework for thinking about it. And I'm glad, like I did worked on a campaign, like actually the first campaign I worked on at my consultancy was trying to get, and it was just finally successful, was trying to get USDOT to commit to a long-term goal of zero traffic deaths. Um, so I, I do think it, it's an important sort of change. We, we shouldn't just accept 35,000 deaths as being a good year, you know? Um, for example, like our traffic safety outcomes are about twice as bad on a per capita basis as Canada. So if we could, if we could do just as well as Canada, which again is, I mean, I think a lot of people are like, oh, the Netherlands, that's totally you know, unrealistic. But if we could just do as well as Canada, we would save up like almost 20,000 lives a year in the United States. Um, and a lot of our like um, regulations are just really out of, um, they're out of compliance with World Health Organization's best practices. And countries like Mexico and India um, have stricter, um, stricter laws about drunk driving in some cases or seatbelts. Um, so there, there's, there's a lot going on. Uh, you mentioned your book uh, earlier. I want to kind of hit on this dynamic that uh, it's called Right of Way, Race, Class, and the Silent Epidemic of Pedestrian Deaths in America. Uh, you, you talked just a little bit about this, the race and class aspects of that. But what what is that dynamic that, that plays into pedestrian deaths when, when it comes to looking at, at class and race? Yeah, so I think like we're starting to understand sort of a range of public health problems um, have unequal outcomes for certain communities based on just um, inequality and structural racism in our society. And, and, and this is the same way um, black pedestrians or black people are 75% more likely to be killed while walking than, than white people. And um, for native folks, it's about two times. They're, they're at about twice the risk. 
And the reasons for that are sort of complex. I think like a lot of, again, if we look at the people who are in positions of authority and traffic safety, they're not very representative of the communities that are hardest hit by this problem and sometimes are too dismissive about them, right? Or not focused on them. Um, we also see like um, inequality, infrastructure inequality across neighborhoods. I mean, I, I think Detroit is a really interesting example in some good ways and some bad ways, because I know they're working on some things. Um, but yeah, very stark that you can you can sort of see if you look at the racial makeup of the city of Detroit and um, compare it to pedestrian crashes, it's it's there's a pretty clear pattern. And that's something that's not specific to Detroit. We see it in metro area after metro area. So there was all kinds of groups um, that are at increased risk. Um, so also older folks, um, people with disabilities, uh, lower income neighborhoods. We, we see, you know, um, and the, some of the reasons for that are kind of obvious too. I mean, a lower income people may be less likely to be able to afford to own a car and, um, you know, the low income housing may be concentrated around dangerous corridors because the sort of needs of wealthier suburban commuters have been prioritized over their safety. So, um, so anyway, there, there's a lot of complex ways. There's gentrification in a lot of major cities that's pushing people who might need to take transit sort of out to more sprawling suburban areas. Um, but yeah, we definitely see um, that come through in a lot of the data. And you, you've obviously been, you know, interested in developing an expertise in this topic for, I think you said, at least a decade at, at Streetsblog. Uh, when you were working on the book, what was the most surprising thing that you learned that was that was new to you or, or most interesting to you? Um, so I, I got really interested in cars, actually. <laughs> um, for a while, I was just covering, you know, I rode a bike a lot. And I just didn't pay any attention to cars. And then I, I, it took me, it wasn't until like 2015 or so around there that I started making the connection between what was happening and um, vehicle design. It's not just uh, the consumer vehicles, also um, large commercial vehicles have some design issues and play an outsized role in bike and pedestrian deaths. That could, and, and some of this stuff can be remedied using technology, um, some of it's relatively inexpensive. I <laughs> think that would be an unpopular statement with a lot of your um, listeners. But so anyway, uh, a lot of the vehicle stuff is interesting to me. And uh, in the book, um, I talk a little bit about automated vehicles and it's sort of like this, you know, trendy thing to discuss. And um, but uh, one thing I'm actually really, I'm kind of excited about the, some of the partially automated um, technologies. I think there is a lot of potential there to save lives. Um, so I'm talking about like automatic emergency braking, um, pedestrian detection. I I'm optimistic about it. And, and some of this, um, some of the stuff that that's coming online, like drunk driving detection and um, distraction, anti-distraction technology. Um, something I wrote about in the book was even um, like vehicle to vehicle communication. That seemed, I think that's exciting. And I'm like one of four nerds that is interested in that. Um, 
But so I, I do think, um, I think that's one, I, I was able to get like a, a certain amount of attention for this book, even though it's kind of on a niche topic, because I do think a, lo a lot more people that some of the stuff about large trucks um, did kind of resonate with people and um, help them sort of see the big picture a little bit. I'm curious, just from a, uh, a book, uh, you know, publishing perspective, like you said, this is a niche topic and it's, it's kind of a grim topic or, or you know, certainly can be, was it, was it difficult to convince a publisher that this was, uh, that this was, I mean, it's certainly a project that has merit, but um, from a commercial perspective was, was that a difficult or, or hard sell? Yes. Yes. It was really hard. I couldn't get, uh, I couldn't get a literary agent interested in it or like a mainstream publisher. I was able to, the, the publisher that I worked with is a nonprofit environmental publisher and they really got it. And, they were great. And um, I think we've broken through a little bit. Like, I think I sort of accomplished what I set out to accomplish, which was I, I thought if I write a book, I can just draw some attention to this. We can get, get a little round of media attention to this problem and look at it in a more, more holistic way. So I think it's sort of succeeded on that level. And this is not like we're selling tens of thousands of copies either. But I do think for like its genre, it's done pretty well. And uh, it is a depressing topic. And I don't know why I'm sort of drawn to that kind of stuff. Like I said, it was it was sort of inspired by Keith Bradshaw's book, which is all about how horrible SUVs are. And really, I like I like to read those kind of books where you just kind of get mad, you know, you're just like, this is an outrage. Um, and my publisher kept saying, like, can we or my editor kept saying, can we like sprinkle in some more positive stuff about solutions and I was like no. <laughs> I was a little bit resistant so we do at the end of the book there are some like sort of there are some examples that I think are really inspiring but um yeah it is sort of it is sort of a sad uh, definitely sort of a sad topic and it, it was sort of upsetting um especially like one thing that one thing that was really um, motivating for me or that really impacted me a lot was it wasn't until pretty late in my career working at Street Spot that I started talking with these mothers whose children had been killed and what they go through. And, and then I had children of my own. Um, my oldest now is almost seven. And I think it was just like, you know, sort of sort of toying with like my own worst nightmare about, you know, what could happen with my children, because we really don't in the United States, we, you know, have limited control over this. We're all part of this dangerous system. It's, it's almost impossible to avoid. Um, so, I mean, the, 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 what people go through and the amount of, you know, sort of pain and trauma as a result of this kind of thing, that's all mostly private sort of, um, sort of handled privately is, is really, really astronomical. I'm going to take a quick break from my conversation with Angie for this word from this week's sponsor. For over 100 years, internal combustion engines have had the road all to themselves. But change is coming, and it's coming at the speed of no sound. At AAM, we're taking our smarts and scale and turning it into the speed of now. Taking our love of axles and connecting them to our passion for amps to drive the world of electrification faster. We're doing things that are so fast, so smart, so innovative, that we're disrupting the disruption. We're not a startup, we're a smart up. Saving cost, saving weight, and sparing no expense to develop solutions. Taking oil and making it cool again. 
reversing the process of inverter development, and embracing the idea of being an engine and not a cog. We believe the future is unified, fortified, and electrified. We're for real, and we're ready. While everyone else is busy making parts and pieces, we're charging toward the electrified future. Because at AAM, we're taking the world by electrical storm. To learn more about our 3-in-1 eDrive system or any of our other market-ready, scalable driveline technologies, visit aam.com future. And now back to my conversation with Angie Schmidt. Do you find the way that you, you know, whether it's from having that kind of worst case, you know, imaginable scenario with your, with your own kids or, or because of your knowledge from, from reporting on this and writing the book, do you walk down the streets uh, differently, kind of like analyzing, you know, low risk, high risk scenarios? Yes. Does, it, does it change the way you like yes. just operate in, in that environment? Yeah, I'm very like analytical in the first place. And yes, I mean, when I, when I was writing the book, um, I had my youngest was probably when I started probably around one. And I was walking my kids a half mile every day to daycare. And I, I mean, it's just like the kind of things you'll deal with where people will refuse to yield to you. You know, when, you, when you're walking with two young children or when you're visibly pregnant, it's so infuriating. And you just have no power as a pedestrian. Someone, like I actually just got hit for the first time about three weeks ago. It was three weeks ago today. You know, it was a hit and run. The police didn't even come. You know, I'm not even 100% sure the guy didn't do it on purpose. And they, I was in the crosswalk with the walk signal. I mean, you just, there was really a power imbalance that I think like um, is sort of imagined away just because it's convenient, you know? Um, so, uh, but luckily my kids weren't there, you know, when that happened, it was just me. But still, it's like, you know, now they, I have these people depending on me and I'm like, should I just give up? trying to, you know, I do this like two and a half mile commute to my office. It's almost all on trails. Like, do I have to give that up because we can't even get like two trail crossings correct on our brand new trail in Cleveland and people are just so angry and um, I don't know. Well, first let me say, I'm, I'm sorry that you got hit. Uh, I, I hope you're okay. You're here talking to me today. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. Are, are you okay? Yeah, I, I wasn't very badly injured. I just had like a leg injury that was not serious. I didn't have to be treated at a hospital. Um, so yeah, I was really lucky. I was hit at a slow speed. So that's a good way to be hit. You know, it was a right turning vehicle. It was an SUV, actually. <laughs> prototypical accident in some ways, uh, at least in that respect. Uh, maybe I shouldn't use the word accident. But I said prototypical. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like I said, I don't know. Actually, I'm not 100% sure it was accidental. I don't know if the guy was like upset with me because he thought he had the right of way. It was, it was weird. I think in people, that's one of the things that's been coming out in some of the reporting about the increase in traffic deaths, that people are just like, this pandemic has really done a number on people's mental health. And I think like I'll certain things about the way we handled the pandemic really um, contributed to a sense of sort of um, polarization and animosity among people and that it's playing out right now. And we're seeing like this fallout um, and people getting injured and killed this way and in, in a lot of other aspects of our society. I'm curious, we talked about, you know, obviously the vehicle design aspects of this a good bit. What's changing on the infrastructure side and does the 
you know, not so new infrastructure bill signed late last year? Is that is that putting any money toward toward solutions that improve pedestrian safety in particular, or is it is it just about paving new roads? So the infrastructure bill is is an improvement on the status quo, I would say, in that respect, but it's not like completely revolutionary. <laughs> and actually, if we would have had like a slightly larger Democratic majority, there was a competing infrastructure bill that was much more progressive. And um, so it's, it's a little bit of a mixed bag, I think. But um, the new USDOT is very forward thinking about this. They're very focused on it. They're going to be trying to use the levers they have. I, I'm pretty confident to improve infrastructure. And there is some progress happening. However, they're pretty limited. Um, the USDOT is just not very powerful. Most of the um, power with infrastructure is um, given to the states. They just give these formula funds and they have a lot of authority over how it's spent. And they're very, um, in general, usually um, sort of conservative and haven't really embraced all the reforms necessarily that would be helpful. So I, I do think there's progress being made on infrastructure. And actually the infrastructure bill included some reforms for um, for vehicle design also that I'm really optimistic about. So I'm going to ask you, uh, looping back, you mentioned you were, you know, crossing, you were on a bike trail in Cleveland when you got, uh, or coming off and trying to cross the street. Like, there's this philosophical idea that we should all share the road together. And obviously, when that goes wrong, it's, it's bicyclists, pedestrians who pay the price. Like, fundamentally, is, is that flawed thinking? Should we kind of have this bifurcated infrastructure where, there's roads for cars and, and trails for bikes, and these two things should minimally intersect. I mean, I do think I'm really, they just built a huge new system of trails right where I live in Cleveland. It's amazing. I'm just like, and I wonder if that's sort of what it will take to get people who are more like normal, have more normal risk tolerance and are less sort of immersed in, you know, biking subcultures that I am to, to get them to consider you know, biking for certain trips and that kind of thing. Um, but uh, we're not doing, we're not doing nearly enough. Like the, it's just, it's so frustrating because the official messaging is sort of very scoldy to pedestrians, you know, use the crosswalk and don't text. And then someone like me <laughs> uses a crosswalk and it's just like complete ignorance of that, the crosswalk. And it, it's like, there's no, and why should people respect sort of, you know, pedestrian right of way. There's no, there's no pressure on them to do that. There's no enforcement. A lot of times the street design really encourages them to speed. And um, there's almost never any repercussions for people, even in, in fatal cases, a lot of times aren't investigated or cleared. Um, so there, there, I think like we need the government to do more to protect pedestrians like they're the more vulnerable party we need to keep quit pretending like six-year-old kids trying to go to school and drivers of chevy tahoes are like equally you know powerful in these street you know right-of-way decisions they're not like one can crush the other super easily and the other would be helpless to do anything about it so we need the government to intervene more strongly on the side of protecting the more vulnerable people i think Angie, tell me about some of the successes that you have had and that you've seen while, while working as a consultant. I know 
Uh, you've done some work uh, in Los Angeles in particular recently where, where there's been some uh, positive developments. Yeah, it's been really cool. Um, I wasn't really sure how like starting my own business would work, especially after because I, I quit my job um, and finished my book sort of in March 2020. And I was like ready to go with launching this business right when the pandemic happened. And then I didn't have childcare because my kid, they closed his kindergarten for a year. So I put it off for like six months and I was really nervous about launching it just because of all the uncertainty around the pandemic. Um, but it's been really cool. We've been in business for almost a year and a half now. And I've gotten to work on some, some really interesting campaigns. For example, one of the things I wanted to work on um, was vehicle regulation. I thought, you know, we should, nobody's doing this. This is so, this could be so consequ consequential. And when there is an important like vehicle regulation fight in Washington, there's like five people paying attention. It's like these groups that are left over from the Ralph Nader era that are underfunded. And um, so I was like, you know, maybe I can help sort of bring some more energy to those kind of campaigns. And then um, the, the infrastructure bill just sort of did everything I was hoping. <laughs> I don't know if we had anything to do with that, but I've also been involved with um, a national campaign um, to overhaul the MUTCD. So just so people know what that is, the MUTCD is this um, kind of obscure engineering manual, but it's basically like the recipe book for our streets. Engineers, when they're designing a road, they sort of refer to this manual. It, a lot of times it tells them what to do. Um, and it's pretty biased against pedestrians in a lot of ways. Like for example, um, one of the things, the example I always use is, it says that localities should not install a crosswalk with a traffic signal, unless 93 pedestrians per hour are crossing at that location. So this is a this is a location that doesn't have a walk signal and it has to have at least 93 pedestrians per hour, which almost nowhere in the United States, you know, meets that threshold. And it's a totally random, like it's a number someone made up at some time, at some point, because they thought it would be sort of hard to meet. Anyway, this is the law. It's the, the Manual on Uniform Traffic Control Devices is a federal regulation. Um, so, and, um, uh, one of the things it says is, or did say was, um, you could, you would be allowed, it, a traffic signal would be warranted with a crosswalk if five pedestrians were struck at that location in a year. So, um, you know, in the meantime, we're, we're ticketing people and sometimes arresting people for jaywalking. And then we have the secret law that only engineers know about that says you're not supposed to add crosswalks or crosswalks with traffic signals. Um, so we, uh, I worked with America Walks, who's one of my clients, and um, a coalition of big um, transportation groups, Transportation for America, National Association of City Transportation Officials, on a big campaign submitting public comments to USDOT because that, that book is up for revision finally after more than a decade, and we're pushing USDOT to make some really bold progressive changes to that. And it, it, if they do it, which I expect, I don't know if we'll get everything we want, but I, I do expect we'll see some progress from, from this administration. Um, it would just change the way we design streets a little bit um, to promote safety. And it, it wouldn't cost anything additional because this is the kind of thing that will change as people are doing um, their normal street projects. They'll just be referring to a different, different guidance that's a little bit fairer to people on foot. So that was a big campaign. I also worked, like I mentioned, on the zero traffic deaths campaign, which we were um, we were promoting 
Um, we wanted USDOT to commit to Vision Zero, or we called it Zero Traffic Death, so a long-term goal but for 2050. So they're, they, they're, they should be working towards getting to a point where a generation or two from now, we could have traffic deaths near zero, ideally. And I think there's like a big role um, in auto, for auto technology in that. Final question for you, Angie. Uh, you mentioned you lived in Cleveland now, which, which happens to be bar none one of my favorite cities. Uh, so I'm curious, tell me more about this bike path that, that now connects Cleveland and Akron. Is that, uh, is that the scope of this? Is, is this a viable like, trail network that, uh, that you can use for like, everyday transportation? Yeah, so Cleveland just they just cut the cut the ribbon in the like the last two years on all these new trails that go right by my house. They're amazing, and like sort of the key, the um, the pinnacle, the the most important one is called the Towpath Trail, and so it runs. Um, there's a trail from my house. There's two trails. They run like down. One runs down by the lake. Um, right into downtown. You can go through the flats, which the industrial flats in Cleveland is really kind of cool. There's all these drawbridges. You're going like over the Cuyahoga River. Um, and uh, then you can go all the way south. Yeah, it connects to, um, again, it goes along the... Um, it goes along the Cuyahoga River past our steel mill. So it's really, it's, it's so cool. Like um, th this whole area of the city that you really didn't have access to, now you do. And there's these sort of breathtaking views of downtown and they've um, done a lot with landscaping and the habitat restoration. So they're trying along the Cuyahoga River that was on fire, you know, so famously um, in the sixties. Now they have these fish hatcheries and um, so you can ride all along there and it will connect you. You can go past the working steel mills and then um, all the way, yeah, it connects all the way down through, we have a national park sort of between Cleveland and Akron and then all the way down to Akron along the historic towpath, um, Erie, Erie Canal um, path. So it, it's amazing. It was um, the, the latest, uh, the latest, portion that was completed that I was talking about, the towpath, um, sort of the crown jewel, was $48 million. <laughs> so it was an enormous investment, an enormous investment. But um, yeah, it's amazing. It's sort of like game changing for my part of town. Um, it's pretty neat. I'm going to have to come check that out at some point. So it sounds very, uh, very intriguing. Yeah, you should. And it, it, like, it goes through all kinds of different neighborhoods. So like... Um, you could stop in Tremont and eat, or you could stay in Tremont, and it, it's great through the flats. Like I said, you should do it, yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today, Angie. I, I appreciate it and, and wish you a safe riding. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you again to Angie for her time and insight on what is, again, a uh, kind of a tragic and an ongoing problem that does not seem to be getting any better. That'll do it for this week's episode. Thanks so much to all of you for listening and to our producers, Josh Freed and Nathan Kadic, who joins us this week. Uh, we'll be back again next week on the Shift Podcast. Switching gears a bit, we'll be talking about hydrogen and its potential role in the transportation system. So I look forward to uh, having you tune in again next week. Thanks. We'll see you then.